Hello, and welcome to part four of Three Deaths, No Life, by me, Alan Boyce. Now we pick up the story with Sean having just lost sight of first blackmail target Peter Smithson. After a revealing night at the pub, Rumours nightclub, and the Woking Holiday Inn with Neris, Keith's mum's neighbour. So here we go with part four. I'm going to have to keep it to under 44 minutes, otherwise I'll have to pay for my SoundCloud hosting earlier than I was intending to. This is Three Deaths, No Life. I woke up. I was back in my bedroom with the same dazzling light streaming through the curtains. Keith was at my front door half an hour later. I explained the previous night's developments. Keith was pleased with my efforts. You've done a great job, Sean. We have a tremendous opportunity now. We know enough to find this Peter Smithson and work out where to hurt him. Plus, where there's one middle-class prick with drugs, there will be others. A tremendous opportunity. The look of devious satisfaction that had taken over Keith's face soon dissolved, however. Uh, Sean... Last night, did you... I mean, when you were there, did they... Um, you know... I asked Keith what he meant. You were there, so you must have... While they... Did you... I... Ah, never mind. We have a tremendous opportunity here, Sean. The mantra allowed Keith to regain his composure. How can we find him, I asked. These dickheads are all on LinkedIn, Keith replied. He won't be hard to find, believe me. He wasn't. After trawling through a number of Peter Smithson profiles, we found one with the same employer. And there he was. A lawyer. So now we had his contact details. Email, mobile phone, office address. But we really needed to find out where he lived. Scanning through the endorsements by colleagues and shared links to fatuous blog posts, we learned that people didn't call him Peter, they all referred to him as Pete. Looking at his club memberships, we found that they were clustered around Guildford. I was right about him driving away from London. We were closing in. Keith hopped over to Facebook and searched for Pete Smithson Guildford. There were a few results to sift through, but there he was again. No privacy settings, lots of pictures of himself, his wife and his kids doing family things together. Keith scrolled back through his timeline. After a few minutes, he let out a bleat of triumph. Ha! Look at that! Keith showed me a picture of a trestle table in the middle of a wintry suburban street, with bunting hung from the naked trees at the front of sweeping lawns. Happy, healthy faces bedecked in expensive-looking knitwear smiled out at us. February the 12th, Manor Gardens Diamond Jubilee Street Party. Keith sat back, a malevolent goblin in his moment of victory. Pack your bags, Sean. You and I are going on a little road trip. It certainly was a little road trip, as Guildford's only about 15 miles down the road. I packed an overnight bag, and we headed off on foot back to Keith's to borrow his mum's car, a ten-year-old blue Nissan Micra with a heavy dent in the front passenger's side wing panel, which she couldn't afford to get fixed. We found Manor Gardens, a broad boulevard of spacious properties in generous settings. Cruising along, we saw a lot of black Mercedes parked on sweeping driveways. Which one is it? I can't tell from here. Maybe that one? Maybe? Maybe, Sean. Maybe he doesn't live here anymore. Maybe he was visiting someone when those pictures were taken back in 2012. 
Maybe, Sean, maybe isn't good enough. Can we drive up closer? We can't drive up to every house. Look at this place. Someone's already probably called the police on us just from the look of our car. No, wait, I've got an idea. Keith reached over and opened the glove compartment. Inside it was a pile of leaflets. My mum does Slimming World, and she's supposed to give these out. She won't, but she doesn't want to upset the leader, so they've been piling up in here for months. Go and stick one through every letterbox until you find the right car. I objected that the leaflets were for a Woking-based group, and that, therefore, it was somewhat implausible to be leafleting in one of the nicer parts of Guildford. Keith replied that it didn't matter. No one would read the leaflets until we were long gone, if at all. The point was to have a credible reason for walking up to each house in turn. Don't just go to the ones with mercs outside. You have to do them in order, otherwise people might get suspicious, Keith insisted. Go on. Reluctantly, I got out of the car with the wad of leaflets in my hand. Keith drove away to park up round the corner so he could come back on foot to do the other side of the street. But before he got back, I'd found the right car, sat outside an open garage door. I went up to the front door to try and get a house number, but all I could find was a name, The Larches. I pushed a leaflet through the slot, turned on my heels and walked, sprinting headlong in my head, back down the drive. As I trotted past the garage, though, there came the sound of out-of-tune, absent-minded singing. When I get lonely and the nana had enough, she sends a cumble bumble in from above. We don't need a waddle wah Peter Smithson came striding out of the garage, holding a bicycle pump. On seeing me, he pulled two slender white plugs out of his ears. Morning! I stopped and held my breath as I awaited some glimmer of recognition. Could he have seen me on that night I spent with him and Neris? That split second seemed to last for hours, as I scanned his face and his body language, as I tensed myself to run, as I tried not to look like I was about to run in case no flash of acknowledgement came. Blood sang in my ears. New Slimming World group, I muttered, holding out a leaflet. Thanks, buddy. Have a great day. Peter walked past me towards his house, resuming. We've got a thing that's called Red Love. He didn't know who I was. Indeed, he'd forgotten me already, thinking instead about how many K he would cover that morning on the South Downs and the beauty spots and picturesque hard-earned pints he and his cycle-bore pals would Instagram along the route, not about how his life was about to be kicked firmly in the bollocks. Keith was standing at the bottom of the driveway. The Larches, I said. What number is it? It didn't have a number, just a name. Well, what number's next door? I don't remember. Sean! He's there. I just spoke to him. You made contact? He came out of the garage as I was coming away, but he didn't recognise me. We started to walk back to the car, faster and faster until we turned the corner of Manor Gardens. Then we ran. Back in the car, Keith's interrogation continued. What did you say to him? I gave him a leaflet. For some reason, I held the stack of leaflets out to Keith, as if to prove the veracity of my statement. Did he say anything to you? He said morning. That was it? He wished me a great day or something like that. He was singing. What was he singing? Um, Radar Love. Golden Earring. 1973. Keith seemed distracted momentarily as he recalled the song's metadata to mind. Then he was back. You sure it was him? It was him, I said. 
We're fine, Keith relaxed. We're fine. Just one more research trip and we are up and running. Come on. Do 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 That afternoon we checked into the Guildford Travelodge. I'd wanted to go home, but Keith reminded me that, under the rules that governed my astral travel, to have done so would have required me to float at walking pace for several hours back to Guildford possibly missing the important interactions between Peter Smithson and his family we needed to observe, as we had no idea what time they would go to bed. Keith had thought through the mechanics of my universe far more thoroughly than I ever had. So that night I went back to the Smithsons and confirmed the following. Superficially happy marriage to attractive wife? Check. Apparently loving relationship with preteen children? Check. Evidence of recreational drug use absent from family home? Check. It wasn't an eventful evening. I shan't bore you with the details, as I don't know how long we've got left. Suffice to say, I came away convinced that Peter Smithson was a heartless bastard. A bastard who could be fucking Neris in a seedy hotel one night, and back here, posing as the beloved paterfamilias the next. Who better than a bastard to blackmail, especially one who can afford it? Nobody's going to get hurt so long as he pays up. And if they did find out, well, it's his fault, not ours. Better they know, because it will all come out sooner or later. Over our full English breakfast, included in the price of the room, on Sunday morning, Keith and I plotted our next moves. Well, Keith plotted our next moves. I nodded along, mostly. We would send a note to Peter at work, along with photos of Neris harvested from the abundant source of her Facebook page and extensive descriptions of what we had seen. We'd only demand a small sum not to tell his wife and kids about Friday night's antics. For now. Keith explained that, as we didn't have conclusive proof that we could show anyone, psychic phenomena being, at best, controversial from an evidential perspective, Demands for a lot of money could result in Smithson trying to balls it out and just deny everything. If we only asked for a few hundred quid, though, a man like Smithson would probably rather just pay up than deal with the hassle of the whole thing coming to light. Plus, he would assume, when we asked for that same amount next time, that we were small-time idiots, who he could take care of another day, Keith explained. To a man like Smithson, Buying time at a highly affordable rate would be a price worth paying, but he didn't realise now that it would become easier and easier just to put the day he sorted it out off. To us, it was our seed capital, our proof of concept. I had to admire Keith's perceptiveness in figuring all this out. He had a pretty sound grasp of psychology for someone who shunned almost all social interaction. Everything unfolded exactly as Keith had planned it. Smithson paid up. I was there with him when he got the note. He read it, stared into space for a few seconds, swallowed, read it again, then put the note into his desk drawer. I was right behind him. I could see the hairs on the back of his neck stand up as he read. Five minutes later, he took it out again and read it again with his hand over his mouth. He leaned back in his chair, looked at the ceiling and exhaled heavily. I was there with him that evening when he didn't say anything to his wife. It meant another night at the Travelodge, but as Keith said, you've got to speculate to accumulate. I'm home! Daddy! A cannonade of little feet down the stairs. My monsters! 
Hello, darling. Good day. Not too bad, thanks. Off my shoes, please, Orlando. Just so busy this time of year. Anything interesting to report? No, just another typical day. Peter Smithson hugged his wife. Lying bastard. That moment, that was when I realised I was okay with extortion. I was there the next morning when he didn't call the police. I was getting a lot of sleep in those days. We asked him to leave the money under the wooden walkway in the middle of Whitmore Common. Not overlooked, lots of people passing by at all times of day. Smithson didn't let us down. Indeed, he'd thoughtfully put the notes into a little Ikea Ziploc bag to keep them nice and dry. To do him justice, he was a model client from day one onwards. We had our start in the blackmail business. It was easy, thanks to our competitive advantage, as Keith liked to put it. When you're undetectable, when no barrier can keep you out, and you've got all the time in the world, it certainly isn't difficult to catch people off their guard. I will admit that I was a little queasy about it at first, but then I saw how Peter Smithson was betraying his family, a family that loved him and suspected nothing. As Keith rightly pointed out, nobody was forced to pay us. They were choosing their preferred option of two available, and no one had to do the things we caught them doing that they were so ashamed of. Did I have qualms? Sort of. I've never liked hurting people or upsetting them. Fear of letting people down is one of the reasons I've always kept my distance from others. I can't bear to disappoint. And so, I reasoned, it's better not to create any expectations at all. But it was an easy jump from watching to knowing. And although I'd thought it was a huge leap from knowledge to action, Keith's certainty and conviction, his lack of hesitation, made it possible for my actions to remain the same, while their character, their consequences, changed out of all recognition. We didn't hang around to see the tears, the despair, the stomach ulcers. It's easy. It's frighteningly easy. You could find yourself doing it one day without ever confronting a moment where you consciously decide, yes, this is what I choose now. It's just as much about the choices you don't make as the choices you do. Sometimes going with the flow takes you beyond a point you can choose to turn back from. Sometimes it was harrowing. I don't enjoy seeing people suffering. Sure, I always like to watch fights and accidents and moments of intimate drama, but I was never a party to any of that. That was just happening when I happened to be there. It was like watching TV with a regularly changing cast of characters, so you could never get too attached to anyone or too involved in a single storyline. I know that I'm not the most empathetic person in the world, even at the best of times, but being the cause of this distress and having to stick with our clients over time, like people in a soap opera rather than isolated episodes, made me feel different from how my previous voyeurism had, and not in a good way. We're helping them, Sean, Keith would occasionally say. For some of them, the money they give us is literally paying towards their atonement. For some, their consciences are soothed by being allowed to feel that they're actually the victims in all this. For others, he paused and looked into the distance, like a kind of rodent Che Guevara, before flicking his eyes back to me. Fuck em, they deserve it. Keith was determined from the start that this should be treated like a business, as professionally as possible. Not that we bothered with invoicing, VAT quarters or anything like that, it was a purely cash affair. Nevertheless, Keith's paranoia about surveillance meant that everything was recorded in handwritten ledgers, stowed away under the flooring my dad had put down in the loft. It's important for that space to be usable, I remember him saying. 
We're parasites, Sean, Keith explained. It's nothing to be ashamed of. The system creates whole classes of parasites at the top and the bottom of society. Everyone's getting a meal off someone else. We're just honest with ourselves. We've seen behind the curtain to the cold brick wall at the back of the theatre. We live in a parasite culture, a society of bloodsuckers. And what, Sean, is the worst thing a parasite can do? I always found Keith's metaphoric excursions hard to follow beyond the literal meaning of what he was saying and the obviously mounting anger or excitement with which he was usually saying it. What was the worst thing a parasite could do? I wasn't sure. Give you malaria? Kill the host, Sean. A parasite that takes too much from the host dies along with the host. Well, most of them probably do. There are some kinds of wasps, aren't there? You know, that eat their way out of caterpillars or something, I think. Anyway, we're talking figuratively. I'm not interested in insects at the moment. A parasite should only take just enough so that its host stays strong and healthy enough to keep feeding it. Keith's theory was that we should only extract money from people who could afford it and who would suffer far more from exposure, option one, than from paying us, option two. The suburban bourgeois pigs of our local area were to be our prime targets. The poor didn't have enough to give or enough to lose, and the rich, well, they have a way of coming out on top, don't they? Best not mess with them. No, it was to be the strivers, the squeezed middle, so beloved of the lying politicians, Keith said. The people in those social strata immediately above our own who were to feather our nest. If Keith had qualms, he never showed it. He threw himself headlong into the details of running an efficient blackmail business. He'd spent the days immediately after our holiday borrowing and poring over books from the library's business studies section, from GCSE revision guides through to whatever management theories had been trendy a couple of years ago, library acquisitions being sadly always behind fashion. He picked up a lot of jargon at this time and gradually began to envisage himself as some kind of entrepreneurial pioneer. I found it a little bit irritating, to be honest. Nevertheless, Keith applied himself diligently and it would be hard to fault the logic behind his projections. Diversification was the key to our line of work. A broad client base means that you're never so dependent on any one source of revenue that their financial difficulties disrupt the business. You can lose a few along the way, but while the money keeps rolling in from the others, you've got time to develop and nurture some new leads. Always be closing, Sean, Keith began to love saying. You've got to identify your audience carefully, to know and understand their needs, desires, fears. You've got to know them better than they know themselves, so you can be sure that you'll always be up the top of the supplier list when they review their budgets, and when the bills come in. Price point is critical. Set it too high and it hurts when it's time to pay. They'll start looking for other providers, alternative solutions. Set it too low and they won't appreciate your value proposition. But that's a really fine balance. No matter how well you've modelled your client persona, exactly where the breaking point lies, what's going to be a deal breaker, is different for everyone. Careful red flagging of risk and strategies for managing it back down are vital. You can't put all your eggs in one basket either. If you invest all your time in one brothel or one drug ring, say, and the police raid it, well, that's your whole clientele gone overnight, isn't it? When you put it like that, it's easy to forget that we weren't just trading in widgets. We were ruining people's lives. When a real business comes up against a disastrous lawsuit because someone's kid has choked on a widget, they've got insurance to protect themselves. 
Hell, the directors can even declare bankruptcy and get clean out of it. What happened with Trevor Long and who he was involved with? Shit, even he didn't know what was at stake. Were we responsible? We started that deadly machinery in motion, but still, it wasn't me or Keith who killed him, was it? Not literally. Keith loved it, though. He'd found his vocation, no doubt about it. Not only did our work give him licence to be judgmental about others' failings, but it also validated his wider view of all humans as falling far short of his exacting standards. He felt that it was us doing the work of justice by punishing our clients. And, best of all, it could all be done without any direct confrontation. Power was in his hands for the first time, and he relished that. We used social networking to grow the business. Peter Smithson's collections led us onwards to other clients. Keith mined Smithson's social media accounts while I tailed him. We were particularly interested in where Smithson was getting his cocaine from. This turned out to be a secondary school English teacher, a man called Trevor Long, who was in the same rugby club. Soon, we were blackmailing him as well. Within a few weeks, we had a handful of clients and a steady revenue stream, a nicely differentiated portfolio comprising adultery, drug use, corporate embezzlement, and one man we serendipitously caught pissing through his ex-wife's letterbox. All middle-class wankers who could afford our tithes. We were pretty naive in those days, and I'm sure we made a lot of mistakes. Certainly, I wasted a lot of nights following people who didn't have any secrets at all worth hiding. Other times, we misjudged the situation. Our client confessed instantly, or they went to the police. Of course, there was never anything to connect Keith or I to any of these allegations. We'd never met them, and Keith's paranoia meant that he never left any loose ends which could give us away. We made a good team. The point was to make it easy for our clients to carry on living their lives and ignore what was happening. These were weak or lazy people who couldn't confront their wives or their bosses. A few hints about where their kids went to school and most of them would get back into line if there was any hassle. And if they didn't, we could just walk away. There were plenty more of them out there waiting for us to find them. And we did have standards. Keith drew the line at anything involving people abusing kids. Any time we uncovered anything like that, Keith insisted that we tip off the police and expose the perpetrators. Anonymously, of course. So maybe we did do a little bit of good as well. I don't kid myself, though. We did far more harm. We made a lot of people unhappier than I suppose they needed to be. And whatever I wanted my life to be, it has ended in disaster for me and virtually everyone I came into contact with. Now, with hindsight... It's easy to say I feel guilty about it, and I'll take whatever punishment I've got coming. Not everyone deserved what we brought on them, and we never troubled ourselves to discriminate too carefully. I can't blame Keith for it. If I'd never told him about myself, if we'd never met, he'd still be dreaming up shit metal bands and unwatchable TV series. We were two volatile chemicals that caused an explosion when we came together. Still... I look back on those few months before it all went to shit as some of the happiest times of my life. We were making money, although Keith insisted that we could only spend a small percentage of what we brought in, in case the system detected changes to our spending patterns. And I felt more whole as a person than I ever had before. What do I mean by that? Well, I suppose I had a purpose. I knew what was expected of me. I knew how to do it. 
and I was good at it? No one else could have done it quite like I did, in fact. The separate compartments of my life had moved into a kind of alignment, and that was thanks to Keith. I still had secrets, but not so many, and not so major. It was as close to feeling like an integrated individual, a properly socialised being, as I ever got. Of course, it all had to come to an end. We couldn't have known just what was going to happen with Trevor Long. It all spiralled out of control in a matter of moments. I tell myself that if we'd just known how much pressure he was under and who he was dealing with, we'd have left him alone and none of this would have come about. My rational mind believes that story, but my conscience knows better. The heaviest burden a soul ever has to carry is the first death it's responsible for. That's the one that keeps on digging in and rubbing, even when everything else you're to blame for is piled up on top of it. Trevor Long was the dealer who was supplying Peter Smithson and others in his circle with cocaine. His clientele was strictly middle-class recreational users, high-functioning, high-status folk who liked to let their hair down in the privacy of their own and one another's homes, sometimes hotel rooms, in ways the law does not entirely approve of. He was discreet, efficient and reliable. His product was always of the highest quality and he evidently took pride in that, although he never touched it himself. Most importantly, as a university-educated professional just like them, Trevor Long didn't frighten or intimidate his clientele like a regular dealer would, all tattoos, scabs and criminal associations. He enabled them to walk on the wild side without having to go anywhere near those of its inhabitants who were there by necessity rather than choice. Of course, they didn't really see him as an equal. They saw him as ever so slightly inferior. For these people, to acknowledge someone who was nevertheless a drug dealer as a proper equal would be asking a bit much. As for us, we were quite happy not looking any further up the supply chain, keeping it retail, as Keith put it. We wouldn't have known how to blackmail proper criminals. Reputation means something totally different once you've moved beyond the daytime world. We knew where we stood with people like Peter Smithson and Trevor Long. Trevor was by all accounts a good and conscientious schoolteacher who genuinely cared about his work. There was no question of him dealing to his pupils. I know because we checked. He was fairly popular with the kids, his nickname, Longy, betraying no ill-feeling, dirty secrets or unpleasant personal characteristics they could pin on him. It was the kind of nickname you'd give a mate rather than a teacher. Anyway, Longy was a good few years younger than me or Keith, maybe in his mid-twenties, so he was more of the kids' generation than ours, I suppose. He was fit and healthy, playing scrum half at the club where he'd made Peter Smithson's acquaintance. The way I understand it, that's kind of like a quarterback in American football. So he was small, speedy, intelligent, and the game often depended on his performance. At the same time, he was a bit of an intellectual. You know what English teachers are like, right? They understand poetry and see all that stuff in Shakespeare that normal people don't notice. Longy was one of those. He really felt art and literature. I don't. I can look at a painting and I think, that's a good painting. The person who painted that was good at painting. And I like that. But it never touches me like it seems to touch some people. I've often wondered what it is that's there that I can't see. I've even been to art galleries at night to stare at the pictures. When you watch a TV programme about art and artists... 
the presenter gets all emotional and explains what's so good about it. But even then, when I comprehend the story the picture's telling, or what it's supposed to be saying, I only get it to the same extent as when I get a crossword clue. Now I know the answer, but it doesn't make me feel anything. Longy wasn't like that. He could appreciate whatever it was that was there, or else he could imagine something into being that got him all worked up. He liked all that shit so much, he decided to spend his life teaching it to others. Sensitive is how my parents would have described him, but sporty at the same time. Best of both worlds, the lucky bastard. He was happily married to Claire, but they didn't have any kids, which is just as well. They did have a dog, though, a golden retriever called Colonel Aureliano Buendia. I don't know what that means, so I guess it must be a teacher thing. Or a coke dealer thing. It sounds Mexican. Whatever, it's a stupid name for a dog. Dogs should have names like Toby or Gemma. We always liked it when our clients had dogs. When you've got a dog, nobody questions why you're wandering around abandoned places at unusual times of day. Dog walkers don't need excuses to go out by themselves. Little packages they might be carrying are written off as bits of sausage or cheese, plastic bags as full of turds. You come across a dog walker in the woods, in the dark, by themselves, with a torch, you don't give them a second glance, do you? I'm just off out with the dog, he'd call to his wife as he went off to make another payment to us. She never suspected a thing, poor woman. Not about any of it. There are loads of woodlands around Woking where dog walkers like Longy could be found wandering at all times of day and night. We favoured Horsell Common because of the sand pits. It looked like a 70s Doctor Who set. Nearby rotten trees made perfect dead letter drops where plastic bags full of cash could be stuffed deep into hollowed trunks for later recovery. I'd be following and watching from the astral plane and once I was sure that a client had put the money in the tree that they were out of the woods and that no one else was watching, I'd return to my body and let Keith know the coast was clear. Keith always made the collections. Unlike most of our clients, I actually liked Trevor Long. He was a nice guy. We weren't all that different, really. Similar educations. If things had gone differently, if I'd made better choices along the way, maybe his life could have been my life. What am I saying? One morning I was following him and his wife as they walked the dog in the woods. We should start thinking about the holiday. It's going to be hard getting the time off, Trev. Since Mary went on the sick, they need everyone else on the ward. I mean during the summer holidays. We're talking a good few months yet. Somewhere hot. How about Barbados? Trev, we can't afford that. I meant Spain or Greece. Somewhere like that. What if I told you we could afford it? Don't be daft. I'm a nurse, you're a teacher. Where are we going to get the money for something like that? Don't say the savings. That car is going to start costing us a fortune soon. And then there's the future to think about. Longy stopped and took his wife's hand. She turned to look him in the face with a mixture of suspicion and anticipation. We won't touch the savings. The car, I know. And we want to decorate the spare room for, well, for when it happens. Claire Long sighed and put her other hand on top of Trevor's. At that moment, a group of teenagers emerged from a side path. They looked at the couple and whispered to one another. "'Morning, sir,' an athletic-looking girl in a tracksuit called, a gently mocking tone in her voice. Her companions smiled, giving sidelong glances to their teacher and his wife. 
Morning, young people, Longy called back unselfconsciously. Out for a healthy hike in the forest. You smoking something you shouldn't be there, Tyrone? One of the boys, Tyrone presumably, dropped a smouldering scrap to the floor and quickly stepped on it, his eyes goggling guiltily. Where's your dog, sir? The girl deftly changed the subject. Longy whistled and was answered with a muffled bark, followed by a thunderous trampling of undergrowth. Colonel Aureliano Buendia burst into the clearing, tail wagging frantically, tongue lolling. He ran round and round the teenagers as they stroked and patting him, delirious joy on his face. You're a good boy, aren't you? What's his name again, sir? Colonel Aureliano Buendia. Colonel what? Aureliano Buendia. It's from a book. He foreign, sir? No, he's from Rygate. The book's called One Hundred Years of Solitude. Is it good, sir? Yeah, it's a masterpiece, but you need to be getting your heads down with Hamlet. It's not long until your GCSEs now. Yes, sir. Come on, Trevor, we should be on our way, said Claire. I love your dog, Mrs Long. Thank you. Come on, Trevor. Bye, sir. See you on Monday. Cheers, Angie. Tyrone. Longy pointed to his own eyes and then at the still downcast eyes of Tyrone. Just be careful, eh? Sir. The boy mumbled as the Longs strolled away. You're so good with them, said Claire. They scare me half to death. They're good kids, really. They're just bored. Nobody expects anything from them, and they end up expecting nothing out of life. Nothing beyond getting stoned on a Saturday morning. Well, what's wrong with that? Claire laughed. Trevor laughed too, but his tone quickly became more serious. They've just got so much potential, and it's wasted by low expectations and lack of opportunity and self-doubt. That Angie, she's so clever but she wouldn't dream of letting on to her friends. She'll remember that I mentioned Garcia Marquez. She fancies you. Well, I can't help that. I am the best-looking member of staff by a long way. Trevor took hold of his wife by the waist and pulled her towards him. That is true, Mr Long. They kissed. Still, look at the competition. They laughed. Claire. Trev. Don't be angry. Why would I be? Imperceptibly, she began to move away from his embrace. I want to take you to Barbados, and I've had a bit of good luck. The atmosphere suddenly chilled. Have you been fucking gambling again? Just listen. Don't you ever learn? After everything we went through, you promised. You promised you wouldn't start again. After my parents bailed us out. What are they going to say? Claire, it's different this time. What did you just say? What did you fucking say? The temperature hit zero. Claire, please, just listen. Yes, I went to the casino, and yes, I laid a couple of bets. My first stake on roulette, it came in. I won £3,500, just like that. Then I stopped. I cashed my chips, and I walked out. I hated myself for going in. I know I have a problem, but I stopped myself. A year ago, I'd have lost all my winnings and come out with nothing. But I stopped, Claire. I stopped, and I walked out. You lied to me. I know. I know, and I'm sorry, but it's £3,500, Claire. Don't blame the money. You deserve it, Claire. Let's enjoy it. I just can't believe you did it, Trev, after everything. Claire was still angry, but a thaw was in the air. Longy sensed it and tried to follow up the advantage. Come on, Claire Bear, you worked so hard. Let's go to Barbados and sit piña coladas on the beach while the sun goes down. You are unbelievable, Trevor Long, said Claire. She set off walking, still holding her husband's hand.
And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we're going to leave things for this week. Uh, it's all going to kick off in the next episode. That's all I'll say at this stage. But I hope you've been enjoying the podcast so far. Please do tell your friends, share the hell out of it. And uh, if you know any publishers or publishers' agents, please do point them in my direction because I would love this to be a physical book one day. Thanks for listening. I'm off on holiday tomorrow to Fuerteventura with my family. So have a great week and I'll see you here next week when we will start to understand why this book is called Three Deaths, No Life. Bye!